Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bedhead. That should be the theme of this episode. <laughs> Why should bedhead be the theme of the episode? Have you seen their hair? I've seen Tommy Stinson's hair, yeah, and it's a bit bedheady, but it's a little bedhead. more, it's much more poison than uh, I expected it to be. They are also bedhead. <laughs> they like to tease. They're teasy <laughs> boys. A bunch of like, oh, we can't go on stage yet because our hair hasn't been teased yet. <laughs> well, Bob, he has other abilities. Well, Bob also has no hair. He doesn't have a lot of hair. <laughs> I, I think very, very little hair. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, his his ability is that he can pee while walking down the street while <laughs> drinking a 40-ounce beer and carrying on a conversation all at the same time. And I imagine he's not sober. Well, I'm also going to ask, by pee, I mean, I can also pee while walking down the sidewalk, but is it... While drinking a 40-ounce with one hand? I can pee while I'm walking doing a lot of stuff, but am I pee... Show me. <laughs> but am, that's the thing. Am I just pissing myself or am I getting the piss elsewhere that is not my pants? Oh, now you're making it a sport. <laughs> I see. Oh, oh, am I just splitting hairs with this now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, now we have to have rules, Grandma? <laughs> welcome to No Dog. No, welcome. Welcome to No Dogs in Space. Yeah, God damn it. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we are here at the end of our replacement saga. We're here at Replacements. 4.5 because I refuse. My wife won't let me call it Replacements Part 5, even though that's what it really is. Because it's it going to be the longest episode of the entire fucking series and probably the longest episode of our entire career. <laughs> <laughs> it is very long today. So strap in, you guys. You, it really, take some time, take breaks, make sure you have water. Yeah. And, and really, just we're going to just dive in bedhead. <laughs> Now, even though Saturday Night Live had been a disaster on many fronts for many people, the appearance actually gave The Replacement's new record a small bump in sales, and Tim ended up peaking at number 183 on the Billboard Top 200. This, of course, was certainly a better showing than their previous album, but like the reception Let It Be received, the accolades nowhere near matched the material success that The Replacements were both hoping and needing to achieve. Yeah, because remember, in the beginning, they wanted to 
just get out of the basement and play. Yeah. That was it. That's all that mattered. And then now we're at the other part. Now it's about songwriting and getting that hit record and getting played on the radio. And I think, honestly, it's it's not really about like being super rich and famous, but I do think a, a big part of it is because they wanted to prove that they were worth something yeah. in spite of themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, no one tells them what to do and they don't have to follow the same path as like all the other bands are doing right now. Yeah, of course. And since the replacements weren't reaching those goals, despite a slew of obviously brilliant and radio-ready songs, they began to look inward as to who or what might be holding them back. The answer, right or wrong, soon became longtime manager Peter Jesperson. Now, even though Jesperson had ceded much of the control of the band to Russ and Gary at High Noon, mentioned near the end of the last episode, Peter was still, at the very least, the band's road manager. But the problem is that while Peter had made an adult decision in turning over the reins to people who had a better idea what needed to be done, he still very much wanted to be one of the boys. And why not? It seems like fun to be on that end. (laughs) Yeah, of course it seems like fun to be on that end. But that's why you learn how to play guitar instead of learning how to read receipts. Ah. Yes. As a consequence, by Peter's own admission, his drinking and drug use soon became nearly equal to that of the replacements themselves. And even though the replacements were just as drunk and drugged out as they'd ever been and getting worse... They at the very least had the presence of mind to realize that maybe the guy in charge of getting paid out at the end of the night shouldn't be passed out in the hallway backstage. So, as it went time and again with the replacements when they had a member of their team they didn't want to work with anymore, the band tried as hard as they could to make Peter Jesperson quit so they wouldn't have to fire him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, this is so middle school. Go on. I don't like Peter anymore. You want to just tell Peter not to hang out with us anymore? Like, no, let's fucking put a bunch of bugs in his underwear. I hate it when they're like, they mess with their food. Never mess with someone's food, by the way. (laughs) I will leave your band. See, for part of the Tim tour, Peter Jesperson rented an RV because the band's constant drinking meant constant stops to take a piss. Many pisses. Everyone had to piss. Yes. Oh, Tommy's got to piss now. Now Bob's got to piss. They all have different bladders. <laughs> all bladder cycling. It's really annoying. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure after. He- Four, five years of this. <laughs> I'm always having to stop. Well, it's not even not even having not having to stop. It's more like four or five years of like pissing in bottles and missing the bottle and having to piss a little bit more than you think that you need to, and then the bottle gets too full, and then what do you do with the rest <laughs> of the piss? It's a whole thing. But Peter figured, hey, we rent an RV, we get some with a toilet on board, ain't no stopping the train, and there ain't no piss on the seat. Yeah, but that just creates the breaking the toilet problem. <laughs> That is true, which we'll get to. Oh, okay. Wow. (laughs) So after searching through the entire Twin Cities with no success for someone who would rent an RV to a touring rock band, Jesperson finally found a guy in Elk River who agreed to rent an RV to the replacements because he was, quote, tired of rock bands being treated like second-class citizens. Sounds like that guy's going to learn a lesson. Famous last words, (laughs) as Peter Jesperson later put it. Now, everything went fine for about a week. But when the replacements were about to drive back into the United States through customs from Canada with their rallying cry, drunk for customs, Peter decided that he just didn't want to fucking deal with a border crossing. So he hopped in the equipment van and left a roadie in charge. Hours later in Cleveland, Jesperson was checking the front desk to see if the band had arrived yet. And that was when he said the aforementioned roadie walked inside covered in white paint. The roadie then tossed the keys to the RV at Jesperson and said he never wanted to see that goddamn vehicle ever again. 
So when Peter finally looked at the damage the next morning, he found that the replacements had stolen a couple of cans of white paint at the last show and had used them to completely splatter the interior of the RV. But that was the least of it. All of the windows had been broken out except for the windshield. And that had only been saved at the last minute when someone came to their senses and stopped Bob from throwing something through the fucking windshield while they're driving down the highway. We're decorating. <laughs> all, and oh, speed of decorating, all the cabinets had been ripped off of the walls. They'd also We're ripped... flipping the RV. <laughs> We're flipping. They also ripped out the toilet and tossed it behind them while driving down the highway at full speed, <laughs> which destroyed the entire reason why they'd rented the RV in the first place. And so for the next week, the replacements miserably rode in a junked out windowless RV, cold and wet, pissing on a heap of debris where the toilet used to be, even after Bob took a fat dump on the wreckage. Oh, God. I saw, you know, I saw this exact same scene at the San Diego Zoo at the panda exhibit. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, when one of the pandas shat on the other panda and the other panda didn't move. They didn't move. They're like, <laughs> I don't need to move till lunchtime. By the time the RV was returned with a story that, quote, the fans did it. <laughs> the bill ran $10,000, the lion's share of the tour profits. And Peter Jesperson came out of the whole debacle looking like he had less control over the band than ever before. Oh, man, you missed a part when they went uh, to the border crossing uh, from Canada to the U.S. and the border patrol guy stopped them, obviously stopped them. <laughs> and he made them all get out and yeah. into a holding tank <laughs> while he inspected the vehicle for fruit <laughs> or whatever. But obviously yeah. there was no fruit. There was wet paint, beer and shit, like you yeah. said. <laughs> and, and apparently when the border patrol guy like walked out, he just told the guys, never come back to Canada again. <laughs> So I love that. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so for some reason, their record label, the replacements record label, Sire slash Warner Brothers, they thought, you know what we should do next? Send them to Europe. Yeah. Well, what a great idea. A three-week jaunt in the beautiful old country. <laughs> All right. Yeah, for these three or these four Minneapolis assholes who have... Barely left Minneapolis. Yes. But, you know, this is their chance. Yeah. But, I don't okay. think they'd even played, had they even played California at this point? Yes. Okay, yes, all right. Yes, they've done the West Coast. Uh, all right, all right. crossed uh, all, over, uh, all over the place. Okay, and just And Canada, making... <laughs> have you heard? Of course. Okay, okay. <laughs> but when the guys got back from Canada and they went back home to Minneapolis, uh, Peter Jesperson, he got busy, like, arranging work visas and getting passports together for the, for the nice new tour abroad. But before they left, there was also another piece of good news. Anita Stinson, Bob and Tommy's mom, was getting remarried. Hey, somebody's getting married. Good for her. So as Peter was about to walk out the door to go buy a wedding present for Anita, he got a call from Paul to meet him at the Uptown Bar for an important band meeting. Mm. Drop everything and come over. Ugh. We gotta talk. Ugh. And that's when Paul and Tommy broke the news to Peter that they were firing him as their band manager. Paul said, it's not working out. I haven't been happy for a while and, you know, the way things are going. And when I get mad, I want to start swinging and I don't want you in the way catching any punches. Yeah. And that was surprisingly the nicest way to put it. Yeah, it really because was. As Peter has said about Paul, it's like he's not a mean guy, but he says a lot of mean things. No, Paul can be a mean guy. <laughs> I, I believe from what I've seen. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. Uh, but Peter, you could tell he was devastated when he heard the news it was like a punch in the gut he didn't see it coming at all i mean he'd he'd been the band's manager since the beginning since they had a proper first show really and not only that 
It was humiliating. You know, Peter was hurt and he resented it for a long time. He was no longer part of the boys. Yeah. But seeing how gently Paul fired Peter and knowing his reputation for being an asshole, I think that Paul really did care about Peter. He did. Like as a friend and and also as the guy who got the replacements to where they are now. I mean, got the replacements out of the fucking basement. I mean, just got them to the show. Got, got them to record. Got them to do everything. Got them everything. They it's would be nothing without Peter Jesperson. No easy feat yeah. with those guys. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it seemed that the replacements had outgrown Peter's abilities. Yeah, they, they had, but Peter also didn't quite stand up. Like, he didn't quite measure up as far as what his role was supposed to be. Yeah, because I think maybe the guys realized how much they were enabling each other. Mm. Because when, when the guys, when the replacements uh, finally did head to Europe on their European tour, their new tour manager rented them an old box truck to ride in for their three weeks, for the three weeks they're there. And I mean a completely bare stripped van with windows cut into it and a separate thing for the driver up front. Like basically <laughs> a paddy wagon. <laughs> I mean, these guys are major label rock stars on tour and they have to sit in a dark and empty van with no seats. Fuck seatbelts. I mean, what's their hotel like? A dog kennel? <laughs> this is what you get, this you pieces you, of shit. Exactly. <laughs> they deserved it. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Yeah. <laughs> Say that to any child. <laughs> yeah, you, if you if you destroy an entire RV, I mean, this is it's a little passive aggressive on the part of Warner Brothers, but I think it's deserved. You see, the thing is, Peter probably would have gotten a nice bus. Yeah. And but no. They don't deserve it. Yeah, but if Peter would have gotten the nice bus, they would have just pissed on that one, too. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was the first time that the replacements, like you said, it was the first time that they were actually out of the country. So at least they got to see the sights, you know, from the tiny van window mm -hmm. and spend time with the locals like Bob did. Mm -hmm. Yes. Once once when they were in Italy, uh, Bob took off on his own after sound check. And when it was getting close to showtime, the guys and the crew, they were standing at the front of the venue and they're like looking around like, Where's Bob? He was supposed to be here like an hour ago. And it was at that moment when they saw someone in the distance shaped like Bob <laughs> running down the street straight towards them. And several meters behind them was a gang of like 10 angry Italians running after him. <laughs> <laughs> They're all yelling, like, Cavolo, che si lutta, veloci, es bob, bob, cazzarola. And, and these were big Italians. They were screaming profanities in centuries-old hexes while holding their knives out, their eyes so red with fury and fixated on bob. <laughs> bob, <laughs> bob, all the whole time. He kept running at full speed and straight into the venue. He's like, lock the door, get security out here. Oh, Bob was, he was relieved. He was, he finally made it. Yeah. Security got them away. The show went fine. And we have no idea what happened with Bob and that Italian gang. But it was definitely some kind of international incident. Maybe he had to marry someone's daughter. I don't know. But it was Probably drugs. It was definitely drugs. Okay, it was drugs. <laughs> they said, from what Paul said, like the way Bob played that night, which he played like shit, probably drugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in that story, it's somewhat cute in its own weird Bob way, but it was really only the tip of the iceberg when it came to what the band was dealing with when it came to Bob and what Bob was dealing with himself. That wasn't the only time that Bob showed up late on the European tour. Carlene, his ex-wife, said that sometimes the band would be on stage uh, about to play and Bob would be across town on the phone with her telling her, find me a map of Venice 
so I can find where this fucking venue is. Yeah. And Bob had been blowing off sound checks and showing up late to gigs all year, partly because he wasn't happy that the replacements were now firmly Paul's band, and partly because his own mental illness wasn't negotiating well with the life of a full-time rock musician. See, Bob had been forced to quit his beloved job at Mama Rose's in Dinkytown for the Tim tour, which was a huge sacrifice for a man who never even wanted to leave Minneapolis or play anything bigger than local venue 7th Street Entry. But since Bob was in a band with a major label deal doing national TV spots Saturday Night Live, his responsibilities were far greater than just showing up to a gig after a kitchen shift. In other words, Bob was living a life that just didn't suit him in terms of what he wanted or in what he could handle. Yeah. And since Bob didn't want to be there, Bob acted out. And because Bob acted out, Bob became the problem. This, as Bob Mayer put it, only fed a self-perpetuating feedback loop that went all the way back to childhood. The idea that Bob is the problem. And eventually, it just got to be too much. Now, Bob had attempted suicide in 1985 by trying to hang himself in a closet with a belt, but it didn't seem like that attempt was genuine. By July of 1986, though, the feedback loop of Bob's mental illness had gotten so dark and so fast that he made a very real and almost successful attempt on his own life. Bob's then-wife, Carlene, came home one afternoon to find Bob unconscious in an overflowing tub after swallowing a bottle of prescription muscle relaxers. He was immediately taken to the hospital and saved, but heartbreakingly, none of the replacements, not even Bob's brother Tommy, knew about the attempt, all because Bob didn't want them to know. Yeah, he would say, oh, it's no big deal, yeah. no big deal. He'd make a joke about it. Those... uh they can those can sometimes be classic symptoms of PTSD. Very much so. Well, all the replacements knew was that they still weren't getting to where they wanted to be. And with Peter Jesperson gone, Bob, as I said, became the problem. And as far as the replacements record label was concerned, they weren't disagreeing. At a record store appearance in Long Island, a large cardboard cutout of the band was sent by the label, in which Paul, Tommy, and Chris were on one side, and Bob was on the other. In other words, Warner Brothers had made sure that Bob could be cut out at any time and still keep the display intact. Yeah, Seymour Stein basically said to Paul, we'll support you in whatever you want to do, winkity wink. Yeah. I don't think that, I don't think they cared what Bob was, if he was going to be in the band or not. No. I think they only really cared about Paul, the songwriter, and Tommy, who's everything you want in a rock star. Mm -hmm. They really just, just wanted those two guys. To them, the replacements was Paul and Tommy. Well, that's what Seymour Signs said, is that with the replacements, it was the same thing as Morrissey and Johnny Marr and the yeah. Smiths. He saw that same duo with Tommy and Paul and the rest of them, fuck it. Right. They can come or go. Yes. And so the label just didn't want any more problems. And like you said, Paul pretty much decided Bob was the problem. And Bob, on the other hand, thought the band was the problem. Tommy would call Bob several times to let him know, hey, we have rehearsal today. Are you coming? But every time Bob was handed the phone, he'd smash it into pieces. Like he went through several telephones yeah. during that period. I think Carlene said he went through about a dozen. But Bob did show up to the first demo recording. You know, they were back at Blackberry Studios working out new songs for their next album. And Bob came begrudgingly. But after that, he blew them off again. Probably because they didn't have many songs for him to do or, or his style, again, wasn't matching up with the rest of the guys. Not anymore. So Paul, Tommy and Chris, they just kept going. We have a record deal. We don't have time to wait around. We got to get to work, which they did. Plus, 
Tommy even got to record a few songs he wrote himself, like this one, Hey Shadow. fucking guitar all right listen <laughs> i mean what do you expect after six beers he's doing amazing i really like that song of course i like it too it is a good song yeah objectively uh, it, it is i mean it is a good song it's tommy's like first like kind of foray into doing that and as you can tell he's a kind of a bit of a paul westberg jr he at is. the moment but Very that's, how, so, that's how you start yeah yeah so. you always start you always start with somebody else and then find yourself exactly so anyway back to the Back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> so now that Bob started blowing the guys off again, Paul, he decided, I've had enough. I, I want to quit the band now. So he told Tommy and Chris, I'm done. I can't do this thing with Bob anymore. I'm just going to form my own band. And Tommy and Chris, they thought about it for a minute and said, well, okay, th- that's understandable about Bob. And uh, about your new band, do you need a bassist? <laughs> How about a drummer? I mean, we still like playing with you. Yeah. So that's when the conversation shifted to, okay, so what are we going to do about Bob? And even though that sounds kind of sudden, this was really not something out of the blue. No. Over the years, they've been thinking about asking Bob to leave the band for a while, three years at least. And at the end of the day, no one wanted to fire Bob. No. But they knew they couldn't keep going the way they were going. And so, after Tommy gave the deciding vote, Paul called Bob that evening to tell him the news. Now, one of Paul Westerberg's criticisms of Bob Mayer's book, Trouble Boys, is that, you know, Paul thought that Mayer portrayed Bob and his relationship as far more adversarial than it really was. As Paul put it, he and Bob did have a lot of fun together, and Bob didn't really capture that. But the thing is, is that their relationship really didn't go much further than that. They're just sort of buddies. As such, when Paul actually called Bob on the telephone, Bob knew that it wasn't good news. After Paul told Bob that it just wasn't working, that Bob wasn't shining in the band's new direction, Bob quietly had to admit that he wasn't happy in the band anymore either. A sadness settled over them both because something truly special was ending, and Bob hung up the phone, no longer a member of the band he himself had started his dog breath so many years before by shoving a bass into his 11-year-old brother's hands. Now, everyone knew all the reasons why Bob Stinson had to leave the replacements. He didn't fit in with the new material. He wasn't willing or able to address his own mental or substance abuse problems, and he just plain stopped showing up to shows and recording sessions. But to be absolutely clear, there wasn't a single thing wrong with Bob Stinson as a musician. No. 
Right up until the end of his time with the replacements, Bob was still writing the kinds of guitar solos that could truly evoke emotion, the way a classical violinist can do the same thing with a Bach concerto. With Bob Stinson, the solos weren't just fillers. They meant something. And perhaps appropriately, one of Bob's greatest solos never even ended up on an album. Recorded during the Alex Chilton sessions about a year and a half before Bob left, the guitar solo on Nowhere Is My Home is still capable of giving chills, familiar and original all at the same time, which is what Bob did best. But the thing about Bob Stinson is while he didn't have a lot of creative input on the last two albums in which he was still in the band, his presence in the band during the writing and recording of those albums was still so strong that it almost defined the replacements. Going back to what we said in our Velvet Underground series about alternative music being for someone, I think that when the replacements were writing everything up to and including Tim... They knew they still had to bring the songs to Bob eventually. See, even though Bob might not have played all of these songs on all of these records, he still had to play them live, or at the very least be on stage while they were played. And Paul Westerberg knew that. And while Paul might not have been writing directly for Bob, Bob was still such a strong presence that keeping him in mind gave the replacements the special alchemy so often mentioned when people talk about the Bob Stinson era. Yeah. Like Chris Mars said, uh, it wasn't the same after Bob. Yeah. Because he did bring something magical and exciting to their music. But don't worry, there's still plenty of great music ahead of them. (laughs) It's just going to be a little more more difficult, a little more nerve-wracking. Because once one member leaves, the rest of the band has to step up a little. Like the responsibility gets to be a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And so Paul right now is he's handling all the guitar parts yeah, and, because, you know, it feels weird to replace Bob anyway, or at least for now. And the band managers, Russ and Gary, they're really getting on their case to keep moving forward because they were afraid the band was going to fall apart. Yeah. And they th- weren't wrong. <laughs> the replacements were hanging by a thread. Yeah. The whole band also felt that way. Yeah. So they pushed the guys into picking a producer for their record. Yeah. And as the band put it, the three of them were now drinking for four. I like, know. Even though Bob left, they're still drinking the same amount. They're just up in how much each is individually drinking. They don't change their writer. <laughs> Why change the writer? Right? Yeah. So Russ and Gary, they push the guys into picking a producer for their next record. They're like, okay, this, the Warner Brothers ain't our guy. He, he put together a great list of, of great producers for you guys. And the guys were like, fine, but leave out anyone REM used for their records. Mm. So, so that's a no to Don Gaiman, to <laughs> Don Dixon, to Mitch Easter. <laughs> They're out. All right. We're, we're, we don't even want to touch that. We don't want to go close there. Yeah. Uh, older established producers who are demanding too much money and just want to order us around, they're also out. Okay. So that list has dwindled a little. Yeah. All right. But let's interview who's left. <laughs> so now the replacements are in the conference room at the record label's office, meeting with potential candidates and doing their best to be as offensive and off-putting as ever. <laughs> they're like, Remember, drinking for four. They're yawning. They're talking over them. They're saying things like, man. Man, you made a lot of shit records. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> they walked several producers. Actually, they ran several producers out of the room within minutes of meeting them. 
And so at one point, I guess like the guys got bored or something because they started going through the label's office supply closet and they found a bunch of red ink and started smearing it on their faces and then all over the walls, of course, and, and playing music loudly on Seymour Stein's prized vintage Wurlitzer jukebox. And Seymour Stein walks in. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> so the A&R guy, he tries to wrangle the replacements, trying to get them down from the conference table, like, please don't fuck with my job. <laughs> but the guys, they're not paying any attention. They're screaming. They're hollering with their faces painted, stomping on the table. Music's blaring. The walls are red. Seymour is yelling. And then and then their two o'clock appointment walks in. <laughs> and it's a guy named Scott Litt, a young and up and coming producer who worked at the DBs. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm Scott. <laughs> Tommy, Paul, and Chris look up like hungry beasts and then lunged at Scott Litt nah. and tackled him to the floor. It's an Apocalypse Now seat, except they're not triggered by a ceiling fan or the horrors of Nam. No. no they're it's just, red ink. They're just assholes. And Russ, Russ from Russ and Gary, he had it up to here with them. He just exploded on the replacements and he yelled, I know everyone here enables your behavior because you're quote unquote rock stars or, or write you off as amateur hacks. And you know what? You're neither. You're just scared shitless. You're scared of trying. You're so afraid of failure. You won't do anything but shoot yourself in the goddamn foot. And then there was a pause. Paul, Chris and Tommy looked at each other completely speechless. And Russ was thinking, I'm getting fired. Yeah. But then the guy started laughing <laughs> and patting Russ on the back <laughs> and being like, oh, Russ, look, big man, uh, scary. Oh, <laughs> you're so scary. We're pretty you're right. better. You're I'm right. <laughs> we are scared. We're scared to mean old man. Watch out for old man Russ over there. You bite your head off. <laughs> uh, and he laughed pegged, about it for days. He pegged them in one. He pegged them fucking perfectly. <laughs> and they became closer ever since. The fucking Midwest. A total enigma. <laughs> now, even though the replacements weren't taking the process seriously at all, the label eventually zeroed in on one candidate, a man so embedded in a certain city that he and it would help define the replacements' next record. The man was Jim Dickinson, and the place was Memphis, Tennessee. Yes! Ah, one of my favorite cities in the whole fucking country. I love you, Memphis. I love you! <laughs> Known partly as the man who added the piano to Wild Horses, Jim Dickinson had also produced Alex Chilton's first solo record, Like Flies on Sherbert. But more importantly for The Replacements, Dickinson had also produced the album Third by Big Star in Memphis. Your eyes are almost dead Can get out of bed and you can sleep You're sitting down to dress And you're a mess You look in the mirror You look in your eyes Say you
They stood on the stairs Laughing at your airs That's a beautiful hangover. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and yeah, now you know what, I, if you didn't fucking listen to it last episode when I mentioned Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, yeah, half the album, half of both Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco and a lot of A Ghost Is Born it's just that song. Yeah. At least it's, be- it's a beautiful yeah. song. Just listen to I th- at least that's what you said and then listen to Holocaust and write a letter to Jeff Tweedy and have him send a check to Alex Chilton's estate. Good, good. Put in the memo Holocaust. <laughs> RE Holocaust. <laughs> Now, Jim Dickinson is one of those characters in the producer world in the same league as Joy Division's Martin Hannett and girl group psychopath Phil Spector when it comes to oddballs with a certain uh, je ne sais quoi that (laughs) results in masterpieces. Dickinson, who is said to have looked like a southern mad scientist, refused to work on Saturdays because that's when he watched pro wrestling. And while a producer like Joy Division's Martin Hannett was all about the technical aspects of the studio and the technical aspects of the equipment, Jim Dickinson's approach to producing was more existential. Jim Dickinson used to say that a producer is an actor, that they've got to be indirect, create a diversion, and trick the artist into giving something that they don't want to give. And considering how Dickinson had wrenched classics from both the Rolling Stones near the depths of their depravity and... From Big Star, who were difficult in their own way, Warner Brothers figured that the replacements would be a walk in the park. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Warner Brothers figured what? <laughs> Did you not go to SNL? So Dickinson agreed to produce the album and brought the replacements down to Memphis to record the band's sixth album at the legendary Ardent Studios. And by the end of it, the band would have an album that could only have been recorded in America's greatest musical city. That album was Pleased to Meet Me. Yes!
Okay, so the guys, Paul, Tommy, and Chris, they go to Memphis, Tennessee, and it's very exciting because they want to get away for a while. They need to try something different without any distractions and without being reminded of what or who they left behind. Yeah. So they get to Arden Studios where Alex Chilton recorded all three big star records right there, Studio A. And then Jim Dickinson taps him on the shoulder and goes, actually, it's Studio B over here. So I, I put us in the smaller room. It's, it's usually for overdubs and mixing. This, this is more you. Okay. Good things can happen here. Yep. And it did. Jim Dickinson, he knew how to work with them, mostly by not telling them what to do or what songs to play. He just kind of gave them a lot of room to figure things out on their own. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if Jim Dickinson knew how to work with them. Jim Dickinson knew how to work them. Yes. <laughs> that is actually, that's what I really, that was a typo. Yeah. That is correct. <laughs> and whenever the guys would start getting antsy and bored, Jim would distract them with stories about the Rolling Stones, Alex Shelton, Otis Redding. Here's one about Elvis. You know, he'd find ways to keep them from getting in their own head. Mm -hmm. His whole Jim Dickinson vibe, the whole philosophical snappy dresser, joint smoking guru on the mountaintop presence that he had, that calmed their anxiety so much that by the end of their third day at Arden Studios, the guys were locked in. Yeah. They were now a strong trio working together to make this record. Even Tommy, who snapped at Jim Dickinson for something he said, it was like a minor thing. He yelled, you think I'm not serious about this? I fired my fucking brother. That's how serious I am. Yeah. Because the truth is, they were planning on coming to Memphis to break up. That is until they realized, oh, we can actually do this. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're without Bob, without Peter. But you know what? We can do this together and we can take this seriously for once. Yeah. I mean, they're still drunk. Yeah, I mean, they're still <laughs> really drunk and, and drinking liquid speed from China. I mean, like stuff that's probably very illegal. Yeah. And John Fry, the founder of Arden Records, he said they, they were the drunkest band he'd ever seen. Well, it's a toss up between them and Primal Scream. <laughs> and wow, that's quite an endorsement. So I'm just saying it worked out. It worked out. And over time, like Jim Dickinson, like just fell in love with Tommy Stenson. Yeah, like, they continued to work together for a while. They after really that. did. Yeah, like as what Jim Dickinson said, he's like, he's like, yeah. But I don't know why I imagined to sound like this, but I know he doesn't. He's like, yeah, work with both fucking Keith Richards and Tommy Stenson. People say that Keith Richards is the embodiment of rock and roll. It ain't. It's fucking Tommy Stenson. <laughs> it's always a guy with a mustache <laughs> and a cigar, which is totally not Jim Dickinson. Not at all. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it really can't be overstated how much recording in Memphis influenced this album. Because I'll say from recent experience, there truly is something magical about that city when it comes to how much it just radiates a musical energy that is specifically American in every way. And it's not just going to the museums. It's when you drive into that city, you just fucking feel it. It feels special. But I will say that my recent trip to Memphis was Memphis with a sense of history, where both the Sun and Stax Records buildings are revered museums where some of the most important rock and roll country and soul in the history of the world was recorded. By comparison, back when the replacements were in Memphis in the mid-80s, Sun Studios was boarded up after briefly serving as a scuba gear shop. Think about that for a second. A fucking scuba gear shop in Memphis. That's where Sun, oh, and where Sun Studios used to be. A scuba <laughs> gear shop in Memphis. They told me about it on the tour. It's a great tour. If you ever go to Memphis, take the Sun Studios tour. It's fucking great. And the Stacks building. That, That's a scuba. <laughs> the Stacks building which now houses the best music museum I've ever been to. It's just fucking top-notch. It was empty and boarded up. 
but one legendary Memphis landmark had never said die. That was Ardent Studios, the birthplace of not just all three Big Star albums, as you said, but it was the home of legendary recordings from Sam and Dave, Isaac Hayes, Booker T and the MGs. This place wow. was musical heaven. And while a lot of alternative artists like R.E.M., Primal Scream, and my favorite, the Reverend Horton Heat, while they would all record there in the late 80s and 90s, it was the replacements that put Ardent back on the map as a place to make a great fucking record. They also, uh, there's a few stains. That's also part of the tour, by the way. And I'm not joking. <laughs> the Art, the the Sun Studios tour. Uh, oh no, not the Sun one. <laughs> the Ardent Studios one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this was an argument that we had of whether we would tell the vomit story or not. We decided well, uh, against it because Carolyn said, "Oh, it's not canon." A lot of people said, but there wasn't anything. No, in- I just said it wasn't important. <laughs> they said that they vomited on the ceiling. How did you get the vomit on the ceiling? But it wasn't really vomit on the ceiling. It was just vomit from throwing an empty wine bottle into a trash can and they missed. And that's all it was. And then Jim Dickinson made it a big legend. Wow. That's that is funny. <laughs> that's, that's funny. You're right. I should have kept that story in. <laughs> no, as far as the songs went. This album would mark the last time that the replacements would revel in their own loserdom in song form, because it seems like the joke was starting to wear a little thin even for them. However, at their last hurrah at look at how much we fuck up, the so-called state of the mats address, might as well have been a prediction of the slacker stereotype that ruled the 90s. And like any good replacements track, it was captured in two takes. That song was... I don't know. I don't know. I I like it. I don't know. Do it, give it up. Westerberg's uh, uh, lyrics, which were mostly ad- ad-libbed, of course. Yeah, but- and he's just having fun with it. Yeah. Because every take had to be different because Paul Westerberg had to feel it. Yeah. And he can't repeat himself. He gets bored very easily, mm-hmm. as did all the replacements. Right. But Paul I mean, Westerberg I- in particular would get bored with singing the same fucking thing over and over again. I can respect that. Yeah. Now, even though the album was recorded in Memphis, the replacements still managed to inject a good dose of Minnesota into the album with the song Skyway. Written using the pathways that lets shoppers navigate downtown Minneapolis during the coldest months of winter as a setting, 
Westerberg crafted a deceptively simple song about missing an opportunity because you agonize too much over the decision. But even though it was a Minneapolis song, it still had the Memphis feel. And I think that Skyway is Pleased to Meet Me's Big Star song. You take the Skyway High above the busy little one way In my stupid hat and gloves at night I lie awake Wondering if I'll sleep Wondering if we'll meet out in the street To take the skyway It don't move at all like a subway It's got bums when it's cold like any other place It's warm up inside Sitting down and waiting for a ride Beneath the skyway I read somewhere, I, I think it was David Frick, uh, you know, the senior editor of Rolling Stone. He said something like, Skyway was what made Paul Westerberg a real songwriter. Yeah. Because Paul, he's observing, he, he's trying to find ways to connect, like the walkways that connect to the buildings. Like, you know, that's that's poetry, man. It is. It's I, pure poetry. It's, I mean, it's, it's different from fuck school. <laughs> you know, they've left their hardcore punk days long yeah, behind yeah. now. It, it ain't Gary's got a boner. No. <laughs> and Paul is writing about everything and anything in front of him yeah. because he is like a sponge. Jim Dickinson even said Paul is like a raw nerve ending. He's aware of the temperature in the room. I understand that. I feel that same thing. Mm -hmm. If someone's upset, I can feel it. Even yeah. I'm not looking at them. <laughs> I know. It's uncomfortable. That's why I have to like just cover myself with a blanket sometimes. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. I'm aware. <laughs> so Paul, very similar. I, I totally get it. Paul, he's writing about anything or anyone like Alex Chilton. Mm -hmm. He wrote a song called Alex Chilton because how could he not? He's in Arden Studios with Big Star Thirds producer Jim Dickinson. He sees Alex everywhere. I mean, he actually does see Alex. Alex was there in Arden <laughs> Studios recording his third solo album, High Priest. <laughs> but you, you get the idea. I get the idea. Yes. And Paul got that idea for the song uh, the first time he met Alex Chilton at CBGB's. Remember that fateful night, the, the record label showcase back in December 1984? Mm -hmm. Well, that night, Paul was really nervous to meet one of his songwriting heroes. So he asked a mutual friend to introduce him to Alex. And, and when he did, he stumbled a little and said... I, I'm in love with that song, that one song of yours. Ah, what's that song? <laughs> and boom, there's the idea for a chorus. So Paul worked on it, but then after a while, he felt like, nah, this is too on the nose. I think this is lame. But Tommy and Chris, they said, no, you're on to something. Come on, we'll work it out a little together. How about use this tempo? Like they were encouraging him to finish the song because they believed it was worthwhile, mm -hmm. which is why all three guys have songwriting credit on it. Just convincing Paul that it's worthwhile constitutes writership, according to Paul. Mm -hmm. So thanks to Tommy, Chris, and of course, Paul, we get to enjoy my second favorite replacement song ever, Alex Chilton.
that's a crazy thing is that he, he turned an awkward fucking exchange into one of the most iconic choruses that he ever wrote. Like just this amazing anthem that's an awkward moment. And that's the cool thing that he said about it, uh, about Tommy and Chris convincing him to do it. He said, if you think an idea might be stupid or might be silly or it might be, especially if you think it might be embarrassing, it's a good chance that you should go forward with it and you should push forward because if yeah. you think about it, Alex Chilton, here comes a regular, you know, the songs that he was most afraid to sing were the songs that were among his best. Absolutely. And, you know, Alex Chilton himself, he was able to hear the song. They didn't play it at, when they were recording it. They never played it when he came in to like say hi and stuff because it was like a little awkward. Mm -hmm. uh, but Peter Jesperson did play it for Alex Chilton like uh, much later, like maybe a year later. And Alex Chilton, he couldn't really understand the, like a lot of the lyrics so much, uh, but he was happy and glad that it was a positive song. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's like, I've heard Johnny's gonna die and I'm just happy that you guys were nice. Yeah, and uh, I think later on, like, Alex Chilton did say, it's like, can I go play in Japan or somewhere where people haven't fucking heard Alex Chilton? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, for those keeping score at home, the song Paul was in love with, Watch the Sunrise, which does sound a little bit like the song Alex Chilton. I can feel it Now it's time Open your Sunrise. I don't know. Maybe I just think it kind of sounds like Alex Chilton. Yeah, I did. I was, I was like, this is just, it sounds just, like the Beach Boys. <laughs> just sort of, I guess, looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you played it anyway. Yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But out of all the songs on Pleased to Meet Me, the one with perhaps the most enduring cultural stamp, or at least the one amongst our generation, is the one we played earlier, Can't Hardly Wait. Now, we've mentioned this song a few times in this series already because Can't Hardly Wait have been following the replacements like a sick dog since they recorded Let It Be. And they just never cracked the code of what this song was supposed to sound like. But when the replacements decided to try it one more time in Memphis... Paul was staggeringly hungover on the day of the recording and couldn't handle a loud guitar. So instead of going hard, the replacements tried a quieter sound on the opening riff and everything else fell into place from there. 
And once the replacements laid down their parts and Alex Chilton added that twisty guitar riff after the line, Jesus rides beside me, the band then took a risk and had Jim Dickinson add a thick slatter in a Memphis on the track after they hopped on a plane for maximum deniability. <laughs> Calling it a pair of the most famous sidemen in Memphis, Andrew Love of the Memphis Horns and Ben Cauley of the Barkays, who was, by the way, the only survivor of the Otis Redding plane crash. Don't ask him about it. He's been asked a couple of times. Dickinson gave Can't Hardly Wait a punctuation and a verve that couldn't have been possible had it been recorded anywhere else. Gonna get that 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 for some reason that one part gets stuck in my song the like that that, I love it but it gets man it'll be stuck in my head for fucking days so (laughs) so, just a little bit just a little bit of window into my brain so the album (laughs) the album pleased to meet me is finally finished Tommy came up with that title it was a thing he would say whenever he had to shake hands with music industry people you know pleased to meet me the pleasure's all yours so Uh cheeky it kind of reminds me of (laughs) Megustillation which is a Spanglish word for thank you for liking us which is the name of your company Uh, you Henry and Ben Uh, actually what we believed it meant was congratulations for liking us okay (laughs) whatever All right. (laughs) yeah it's Megusta Uh, we like you like I like Congratulations for liking us. That's what Megustillations means. Pleased to meet me. <laughs> Pleasure is all yours. And the cover photo is of two hands shaking, one wearing a tattered, dragged old shirt, you know, Paul Westerberg's hand. And the other one is a businessman, you know, the businessman suit and a fancy watch. You know, they were not very subtle no. with showing, yes, we did sign a major label contract. We are shaking hands with the man. Sure. But we're not changing or compromising who we are for a bundle of cash. At least we're trying not to. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fighting against that at every single turn. But the thing Thing is they are being pressured yeah. especially paul you know that whole you got to write a hit song you're the best songwriter in the world you can write that song that top 40 hit or at least change the lyrics to this song and make it more universal like try to find a way to appeal to the masses like paul he heard that from sire warner brothers russ and gary they're all putting this pressure on him like we're counting on you mm-hmm. and you still haven't replaced Bob. You need a new guitarist. If you're going to go on tour soon, uh, we need to get someone, uh, get someone young and sexy, a, a Tommy Stinson type. Yeah. And Paul, Chris and Tommy all said, nah, we have a better idea. <laughs> We're going to go with this local guy. His name is Bob Dunlap. We can't call him Bob. Another Bob? That'll be weird. <laughs> we'll call him Slim. Slim Dunlap. And he's a fantastic guitarist. A journeyman side musician. Been in a hundred bands. None of them worth a damn. <laughs> Offer him a beer and he'll play for you. Doesn't matter what it is. Country, western, polka, rock, you name it. Oh, and he's also 35 years old. <laughs> and married with three kids. And he carries a gun wherever he goes. 
That's what we wanted. <laughs> oh, is that not what you asked for? Is that, is, is, that, is that not what you asked for at all? Oh, is it not? Okay, well, too bad. It's just fucking slim. It's slim. It's slim. Okay. That guy. <laughs> Which, funny enough, the replacements had to cajole him hard they into did. joining the band <laughs> because, Bob, uh, because, I mean, sorry, Slim Dunlap, he didn't want to leave his family for the road. Plus, he was working as a janitor with his buddy Bob Stinson. And Slim felt like, I can't replace Bob Stinson. And everyone else said, yes, you can. Yeah. Even Bob Stinson said, yes, you can. <laughs> Join the replacements. I'd rather it be you. Yeah, because Bob and Slim actually worked together. Like, Because after Bob uh, quit Mama Rose's, he took a job as a janitor cleaning up nightclubs during the day. And him and Slim actually worked that job together. And Bob's like, nah, you could do it. Like, fucking yeah. Paul Westerberg's the devil, but you could do it. You could handle him. Yes. No one else could handle him, but you could handle him. <laughs> That's what they say. Even Tom. <laughs> Tommy Simpson said like many, many years later, he said that Paul Westerberg was more difficult than Axl Rose. <laughs> and Paul Westerberg responded with, I'm probably more difficult than a room full of Axl Roses. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Take it from that. Yeah. At least he's aware. Yeah. And Slim Dunlap was uh, it was a pretty bold choice. As someone said that replacing Bob Stinson with Slim Dunlap was like if the Rolling Stones had replaced Brian Jones with Carl Perkins. Mm-hmm. Like It's a very bold decision. Yes. And so Slim Dunlap, he accepted the offer. He became a replacement or what I call a willing accomplice. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out to be a good fit. They worked really well together straight from the first rehearsal. Look at them. Look at these guys. I mean, they were going to combust and break up and and now they have a great sounding record. They have a solid guitarist. They're heading in a good direction. They're finally satisfied and confident. And then they rob their old record label Twin (laughs) Tone. Yeah, they sure as fuck do. And why, pray tell, did they rob their own record label? Could you (laughs) illuminate us? Okay, remember Twin Tone. Twin Tone. Twin Tone out of Minneapolis. Yes. Uh, the replacements, they recorded their first four records on Twin Tone. Remember the little indie label that Peter Jesperson and Paul Stark co-founded back in 1977? Mm-hmm. But now it's 10 years later and Twin Tone is facing financial problems, mainly because their independent distributors are filing for bankruptcy and not able to pay Twin Tone the money they're owed. Like their main West Coast distributor, Green World. Mm-hmm. Green World went bankrupt owing Twin Tone $100,000. Jesus. That's money Twin Tone really needed to pay the bills, to pay the employees, to pay the band's royalties. And why did Green World go bankrupt? Because of Jello fucking Biafra. We're sorry that you no longer need or wanted or even cared about here. Machines can do a better job than you and this is what you get for asking questions. The units agree sacrifices must be made. Computers never go on strike. To save the working man, you gotta put him out the pasture. It's like you have to let you go. Doesn't it feel fulfilling to know that you, the human being, are now obsolete? And there's nothing in hell will let you do about it. Super's good for That's the Dead Kennedys. Yes. Who I, I couldn't see last night. <laughs> Unfortunately, they played, I mean, without Jello Biafra. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Okay, so you see Jello Biafra, the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys, it was his idea to put in a large poster of H.R. Giger's penis landscape as an insert to their 1985 album, Frankenchrist. Now, Marcus, can you tell me what H.R. Giger's 
penis landscape looks like? It's fucking foul. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and we it's, have it at home. We do. Uh, I, a print. I've, I've, I finally found a, an original pressing of Frankenchrist with the poster inside. And man, when you see it actually at there, when you see it printed and not just on a computer screen, man, it's fucking gross. It's art. It's, it is art. But it's, yeah, it's these gigantic cocks going into these big fucking nasty pussies. It's Or butts. Or butts. Either or. But yeah, it's it's foul. It's very foul. <laughs> <laughs> and Beautiful, but foul. Yes, exactly. So that's all that's going in every, the sleeve of every Frankenchrist album, <laughs> 1985. And to make a long story, an extremely long story, <laughs> a little bit short, Jello Biafra, along with four others, including the owner of Green World, were charged by the Los Angeles DA's office with violating Section 313.1 of the California Penal Code, which, if you don't know what that is, is distributing harmful matter to a minor. Yes. The charges against Green World were dropped at the court hearing in 1986, and then Jello Biafra, who owns his own indie label Alternative Tentacles, along with the general manager, Microwave, fought the charges in court and ultimately won. Yeah. But so much was lost. <laughs> the dead Kennedys broke up and Green World went bankrupt. And because of legal fees and operation costs, since they had sent out hundreds of thousands of penis landscape posters <laughs> all over the West Coast and that they really need back. This is going to be really expensive. <laughs> that, and the fact that Green World lost an exclusive distribution deal with their former parent company, Enigma Records. They felt like they couldn't afford to pay, not not without messing up their operations. Yeah. So they ended up owing the replacements a bit of money. And according to the band, it was a lot of money, like $30,000. Yeah. And so after a photo shoot in which Slim Dunlap used a rifle as a prop to play up his small town Slim persona, he did also carry a gun with him everywhere he went for reasons unknown. <laughs> but he likes to have the prop is for the photo shoot, right? <laughs> yeah. Why can't you just use your real gun? <laughs> <laughs> the replacements decided, as they usually did, to have a little drink. Pretty soon, they all started grumbling about the money that Twin Tone owed them, especially since Twin Tone had just announced that they were going to release the first three Replacements albums on cassette for the first time. One bold statement followed another, and pretty soon the band realized they weren't too far away from the Twin Tone offices, where they believed they would find the master tapes for every Replacements album from Sorry Ma to Let It Be. Whose idea was it first? That's all I want to know. Bob Mayer, find that for me. Well, see, the way the Replacements figured it, those tapes were fucking theirs to do as they fucking please. And about the funniest thing they could do was to commit a sort of musical murder-suicide. Let's go the fucking Twin Tone offices, let's steal the masters our own fucking albums and toss them in the fucking Mississippi yeah. River. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> now, at this point, Slim Dunlap was trying to be the voice of reason. He thought that if you steal the tapes, why not just keep them? <laughs> why throw them into the river? That makes too much sense. But, but as he later put it, yes, this was not a logical discussion. <laughs> Quiet down there, Slim. <laughs> Quiet. Can I borrow your gun? <laughs> and so Tommy, Chris, and Paul went into the Twin Tone offices while Slim waited in the van with the engine running like it was a fucking bank robbery. <laughs> and while Tommy ran interference by chatting up the receptionist, Chris and Paul snuck over to the office's storage area and rifled through the tape library trying to find the masters to their albums. Now, while the band must have thought they were being terribly clever... Were they all in black? <laughs> I hope so. Both a staff member at Twin Tone 
and the office manager were well aware that two of the replacements <laughs> were in the office looking for something. But as they later said, that wasn't weird in and of itself because Chris and Paul were, after all, in the replacements. But after a few minutes, Chris and Paul found what they thought they were looking for. And when they and Tommy walked through the front door of the Twin Tone offices with a big box full of reel-to-reel tapes, the office manager was so confident that they had nothing of worth that they actually held the door open for them as they left. <laughs> what you need is a permit. Let me write that one down for you. Here you go. Go on with your day, sirs. She then watched as the boys got into the van and presumably yelled, Go, 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 go! And Slim as he peeled off down the street. I hope their coffees were on the hood of the van while they peeled. And after heading downtown with what they thought were the masters to their first five albums, the replacements found a spot atop a small embankment and started un spooling tape after tape down into the river with glee. (laughs) But following this orgy of musical destruction, when the band started reliving their great triumph over more drinks at the CC Club, they somehow realized that the tapes weren't the masters after all. And they weren't. Who's the genius who figured that out? <laughs> wait, wait a fucking minute wait. here. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, all the replacements had done was destroy a bunch of safeties used for promotional cassette dubs for the release of the band's first three albums. The masters for Twin Tones' best-selling records were quite sensibly safely locked on the second floor of Twin Tones' offices. But the band didn't know that. And since they were now even drunker, The plan turned just the teensiest bit dark. (laughs) Well, they decided that the tapes had to be at the home of Twin Tone co-founder Paul Stark. So they figured, let's go rob Paul. Oh, my God. Thinking that if Tommy's distraction rap worked once, it worked twice. The band sent the staggering Stinson to Stark's front door to chat up Paul Stark's wife, while Westerberg and Mars planned to rummage through the house that I think had a child inside, correct? (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) But when Paul Stark's wife slammed the door in Tommy's stinking face and immediately called her husband, the band had a moment of clarity. And like a sketch that you just don't know how to end, they just went home. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> By the next morning, however, word had circulated around town about the great replacements caper. And- oh, yes. <laughs> Someone's asked them. They were like, I heard there was a shooting. And Tommy covered with a photo shoot. We had a photo shoot that day. I mean, some of the stories did have Slim Dunlap holding Twin Tone employees at rifle point while Paul and Tommy searched for the tapes. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's hard to refute, but that was wrong. That is wrong. I mean, the thing is, like, if people were willing to believe that, then I think it tells you that there was an obvious darkness brewing in the replacements, and everybody in Minneapolis knew it. Hmm. This would mark the last time the replacements were cute. And when Please to Meet Me was finally released, their career frustrations began to meld with their personality flaws in increasingly destructive ways. But perhaps proving that a curse is a curse, the replacements weren't the only ones making bad decisions about their career at this point. And over the next couple of years, both the band and the label would choose the wrong path again 
and again. Yes. So the label usually picks the single. And Warner Brothers was like, uh, we know what we're doing. Over <laughs> half of our records topped the charts last year. So we're not going to go with the obvious choice, Alex Chilton, because that's too obscure. The audiences won't get it. But they do like a rocking, blistering guitar solo, like the one in The Letch. <sighs> <laughs> I like this song. I know, it's good. It's just, it's just the wrong decision. Yeah, let's pick the only song on the album that doesn't sound like The Replacements. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a story. The song is a story about a guy feeling suicidal. He's on a ledge knowing nothing can help him. And then he jumps. That's the song. It's, <laughs> it's very haunting. That's the joke. Yes. I mean, it, it's a very... It's a very serious song, of course. And yeah. The Replacements, they even made a music video for MTV with them in it, which had been, as you said, a fight for years. Mm -hmm. Like The Replacements, yes, they'd made a couple of videos in the past, but they were just things like a shot of a stereo for like the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but this time the band agreed to not only make the video, but be in it as well. So they're sitting on the couch. They're eating sandwiches. They look like they're getting ready to film a music video, really. <laughs> These are test shots, yeah. I think, is what they got. Yeah, it's better than the last one where they just filmed the speaker and a dog walking around and the video, the most expensive part of the video was the fucking dog. Exactly. <laughs> and in this video, there's close-up of their faces, at least, and there's even close-up of the couches as well. Yeah. They used whatever they could get. And I heard that Bill Pope um, uh, lighted the whole place. Uh, he was a cinematographer who later went on to do The Matrix. Mm -hmm. So you could really tell from the way he lit the scene during the close-up of the couches that he had a bright and promising <laughs> career ahead of him. I'm so glad they really, they kind of underused him there. <laughs> but you know what? I'm glad that he did well in the end. Yeah. So honestly, in the video, it looks like they're in pain. They're like, are we compromising our principles? <laughs> honestly, I don't know what they are anymore. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting. What artists went through back then. I read this great article just now about the, in the New York Times about how artists now are like, I don't want to do a fucking TikTok. And it was the same back then with, I don't want to do a fucking video. The cycles continue oh, again and again. Doesn't it? So Warner Brothers, they sent the music video of The Ledge to MTV, like parents who end up doing their kids' homework to avoid a hassle. <laughs> like, here you go, put this on the air. 
<laughs> the video was rejected by MTV's standards and practices department because of the subject matter. Not of the video or the couches, <laughs> but the lyrics in the song. They were afraid that it could encourage young people to die by suicide. And not just that, but Paul Westerberg got a lot of heat for that song. They felt that he was glorifying suicide. But Paul said, no, I'm not glorifying or condemning. I'm reaching from a part of me that once had those feelings and I'm writing about it. But the problem was, it was really bad timing. About a month before they released the song, four teenagers from Bergenfield, New Jersey, were found dead in their car due to intentionally inhaling carbon monoxide in an empty garage. Yeah. Uh, but we're not sure why those teenagers died by suicide. But the night before they were found, one of the kids said, we're going to go see our friend Joe. Joe, a friend of theirs whose accidental death the previous year devastated them. Yeah. That incident was called the Bergenfield Suicide Pact. A couple of days later, two teenage girls died in a similar way in a suburb outside of Chicago. And coming up next, it's alleged by the replacement <laughs> telling you to do, 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 do it. <laughs> you can- Get the gun. Get the gun. Shoot, 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 shoot. You see, it was bad timing. The whole thing was bad timing. It's really fucking bad timing. I mean, talk about the fucking curse of the damned. This is the, the curse of the replacements. Is fucking, this is such insanely bad timing. It's not good. Yes. So, so And not their fault also. Yes. So as I said, MTV rejected the video and then commercial radio stations stopped playing it too. This was a massive case of bad timing, bad circumstances, and bad publicity. Yeah. And speaking of bad publicity, <laughs> Paul, Tommy, and Chris were awful when they went in for live radio interviews yeah you think interviewing producers was bad the, the guys these guys they showed up drunk and they cursed their way through like several interviews which is as we know a big no-no with the fcc very much so and you know it's actually illegal to be drunk on the air well they were drunk the whole time <laughs> the whole time well, i don't know about illegal but it's definitely like you can get fined for being drunk uh on public radio airwaves wow we oh yeah that was definitely something that back in college that we had to hammer into many students heads many times <laughs> Do not show up drunk and do not get drunk on the air. Right. And so by the end of 1987, they were barely pushing past 170,000 sales for Please to Meet Me, which mm. was more than double Tim's sales, but it didn't go gold when it should have. Yeah. Which, by the way, going gold is 500,000 sales. That was disappointing because they wanted to get that hit record and get what they felt they were due. They didn't have to be super rich and famous and, and definitely not compromise their way to get there, but to see other bands they've played with become really successful while the replacements get into their stripped-down ice truck and their <laughs> $750 a month allowance, I think that must have stung a little it bit. stung a lot. Come on, boys. We'll sit in there. Come on. Like their furniture, you know? And then Paul picks up the latest Rolling Stone magazine issue and sees R.E.M. on the cover with big lettering that says, R.E.M., America's best rock and roll band. And that's because R.E.M., who had been steadily on the rise since 1981, had not just one, but two gold records at the time. Their second one, called Document, would soon go platinum in a matter of months. And their producer, Scott Litt, by the way, <laughs> the guy the replacements tackled in the conference room during their Lord of the Flies slash Apocalypse Now scene, Scott, he produced R.E.M.'s first platinum record, which included the hit single and hit MTV music video, <laughs> The One I Love. Oh, 
Tour. Do you remember that? Remember REM? Yeah. Yeah. Remember the replacements? That their buddies. They were buddies of REM. Peter Buck, REM's guitarist, played a solo on "I Will Dare." Mm-hmm. You know. Well, REM they got pretty big, <laughs> <laughs> thanks to the three C's: college radio, the critics, and the concerts. And the fact that their music was smart and catchy, it showed awareness, context, a little humor, and intelligence. And at the same time, it's extremely accessible. They became an international household name. The one I love, Man in the Moon, Shiny Happy People, It's the End of the World as We Know It. What else? Crush with Eyeliner, Losing My Religion. Uh, it, I mean, it, it just on. goes on and yes. on and on and on. They've all gone platinum. Yeah. All of them. Just major, huge. They're huge. Yeah, it's R.E.M. for fuck's sake. I yes. mean, come on. And as far as music industry stuff goes, R.E.M. didn't just play the game. They created their game, yeah. the alternative game. You see, R.E.M. also hated music videos but instead of refusing to even make one or purposely making a lazy video <laughs> they decided to take that lame medium and bring in their own artistry to it yeah they made uh, everybody hurts i mean that music video is brilliant i mean it seems a little yeah it, it does seem a little like these days <laughs> <laughs> but it was like a uh, an achievement back it, then it remember tr- nathaniel hornblower like fucking blew the is lit <laughs> he went nuts when, when the beastie boys lost the, yeah. the mtv music video of the year i remember that but it's a but it is a it's it was groundbreaking. REM did it right. And you're right. They created the fucking game. They created the alternative game. Right. They did. They they, they were rock stars still. I mean, they did drink and they would party and stuff and they'd say whatever they wanted on radio interviews. Well, without the cursing. Yeah. But you know what? These interviews would always be followed up with a thank you note from the REM office yeah. because they always kept it respectful. Sometimes a little uppity, yeah. a little snobby, <laughs> but they gained a lot of respect just from being mature. Yeah. And that can make a difference between having Michael Stipe as your front man and Paul Westerberg. Yeah. But then again, who are we doing the series on? <laughs> oh, and one more thing. Peter Buck has said that more people bring up that I Will Dare solo more than anything else in his career. <laughs> and he means way more than anything else. He could be at the doctor's office or jury duty and he'll get, you played on the replacement record? What was that like? I mean, and uh, it's it's hard to overstate like how much this really stung to see R.E.M. become, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest rock band in the world, at least temporarily. Uh, Michael Hill, the A&R guy at uh, Warner Brothers, told this story of him talking to Paul Westerberg one day and asking Paul Westerberg, like, what do you want? Like, what really? Like, we're, we're here. What do you want? And Paul says, I want to be as big as R.E.M. And Michael Hill just had to sadly tell him, that's not going to happen. You, you need a, a thank you note. <laughs> 
Well, they're going on fucking radio interviews and they're st- and they're, they're saying motherfucker. <laughs> and they're asking them to play songs that actually that says mo- that say motherfucker in the sh- like they're playing. They are consciously rigging the game against themselves at yes, every point. That's true. But at the same time, they also thought the whole game was rigged anyways because of the payola scandal of 1986. Well, that's a whole it, different thing. That's probably going to be thing. an extra play in the future. We got to talk about it. Yeah. Now, the next album after Please to Meet Me was 1988's Don't Tell a Soul, which I've seen in more new arrivals bins at used record stores for $3, almost as much as John and Yoko's Double Fantasy. And let's not mince words here. It deserves to be there. The album, as it was released in 1988, it's bad. There's no other way to put it. But notice that I said that the album, as it was released, is bad. The songs are not. See, at this point, Paul's songwriting had evolved past the musings of a 20-something fuck-up into something more introspective and raw, which very much reflected where the band were as people at this point in their lives. Yes, Paul was turning 30, and he wanted to write a dark pop album. He wanted to make his own big stars third. But the label and their managers, they wanted him to write more anthems, like Bastards of Young. They wanted another Bastards of Young. Mm -hmm. And again, the pressure is on Paul. Meanwhile, Tommy and Paul are fighting over stuff constantly. Their egos are getting big. Their heads are swelling. They're drinking excessively and doing lots of drugs. While Chris Mars, he decided to stop partying and started alienating himself from the band Mm -hmm. because he started realizing I'm enjoying working on my art a lot more than this bullshit. Yes. And while they're recording Don't Tell a Soul, they are absolutely out of control. They started playing a, what was this? A dodge Knife was the game that they started playing while yes. recording. It's like dodge Dodgeball, but just just think about it. But, just think about it. And that was fun. Yeah, That's that fun. Was fun. They were like Wednesday Adams. <laughs> There are a bunch of Wednesday Adams. What are you doing? <laughs> Playing. Yeah, and while they're recording at this studio, and I think it's like Bearsville, New York, like mm-hmm. Metallica is there at the same time, like doing the final mix on Injustice for All. They're yes. sitting there. They're busy mixing Jason Newstead's bass parts out of the entire album as a prank. And <laughs> <laughs> wow, guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and the replacements are scaring Metallica, although Metallica is not all that easy to frighten. Wow. Wow. Well, you know what? I'm going to invite Metallica over next time. We'll see. We'll see who's scared. I saw some kind of monster, as all you did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Well, see, there was very little joy in the songs that the replacements had released in 1988. There's not an ounce of fun on any of them, as if every bit of life and feeling was strangled and squeezed out until nothing but a shriveled sack of a radio-friendly unit was left. So if Paul Westerberg was still writing good songs, then what happened? The answer is the mix. Yeah. Chasing a hit far too hard. The replacements chose a mixing engineer named Chris Lord Algy to give Don't Tell a Soul a modern hit-making sound. As Paul Westerberg later said, the songs were done, so what's the worst that could happen? Again, famous last words. Well, in the past, it's kind of worked out okay for them. Mm -hmm. So they figured, eh, well, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Now, as Chris Mars put it, you don't hire Chris Lord Algy to mix a garage rock album. Lord Algy's specialty was compression, meaning he mixed everything to optimize how an album sounds on an FM radio playing through shitty speakers. And in this, Lord Algy has been highly successful over the last few decades, mixing huge hits that you're just fine with. Well, that depends. We'll see. <laughs> and he's still mixing albums to this day. He just mixed the seventh Kiefer Sutherland album. Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> Is there a list of really cool Lord Algy stuff? I, it's all music profile, allmusic.com. There's a huge list of everything. I think he's mixed something like 14 albums this year already. Wow. Yeah, dude is not slowing down at all. I got a fucking email from my Sweetwater account the other day saying, hey, buy this new Chris Lord Algy class on how to mix. I'm not. He's like, well, the first thing you got to do is get some shitty speakers. <laughs> but as far as the hits go, Living in America by James Brown was Lord Algy. Time of Your Life by Green Day was Lord Algy. I like that song. Yeah, The Way by Fastball. Celebrity Skin by Hole. Oh. Counting Blue Cars by Dishwalla. Fucking This Kiss by Faith Hill was Chris Lord Algy. Aww. I, I think about his only moment of genius was that in addition to all this, he mixed the entirety of Rob Zombie's Hellbilly Deluxe. <laughs> I mean, it is a moment. He helped to put a metal song about the Munster's car on mainstream radio. That is kind of a stroke of genius. But when Lord Algy... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. Yeah, yes, burn uh, through the witches and drag through the ditches. Regular. We should make him a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but when Chris Lord Algy was handed Don't Tell a Soul by the replacements, he, in his studio that constantly played 1988 MTV tried to make it sound like late period hair metal. It sounds like Skid Row. Love it. Or I mean, it's fine. It's Bon Jovi. Yes. It's stuff you're fine with. It doesn't uh, yeah, actually no. make you feel anything. I know. You're you right. Know? No, I mean, no, it is great. And, uh, I mean, Skid Row, maybe Chris Lord Algae could work with Skid Row in that sense. But you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's just filler. You know, it's fine. For a prime example, let's listen to one of the songs that Chris Lord Algy mixed off of Don't Tell a Soul. This is the anthem that they asked for. This is We'll Inherit the Earth, which is supposed to be uh, the sequel to Bastards of Young. Shocking out of things shocks anymore. The message read as it washed ashore. Skies turn black. As my eyes look down Written on the back Of these words I found We'll inherit the earth But we'll want it It's been ours since birth And what you do around it 
actually pretty catchy. It's catchy. It's catchy enough, but, but it's a plastic mix. Yes, yes. You know? The mix is all wrong. Yeah, and it's the worst possible choice for a band like The Replacements who thrive on authenticity. And like I said, the songs are fucking great, but the mix dooms this album to forever live in 1988. Yeah. But in 2019, this injustice was remedied by Matt Wallace, who actually produced Don't Tell a Soul. The album was remixed and released as Dead Man's Pop. And while nothing will make Asking Me Lies a good song, Matt Wallace was able to save some of the best songs Paul Westerberg ever wrote from being lost to a bad decision. And where did they find those tapes, those master tapes, the, the rough mixes that Matt Wallace did? In Slim Dunlap's basement. <laughs> Not floating towards the Gulf of Mexico. What? No, Slim Dunlap actually put it away in a cupboard and then his wife found them while cleaning in 2014. Because <laughs> he's like, yeah, of course. Why, why would I throw it out? <laughs> why don't you just keep them? <laughs> in particular, this album has what could be considered a lost alt-country masterpiece that builds from something genuinely Americana into what is not only a Paul Westerberg song, but unmistakably a replacement song. This is a true moment of artistic growth that was entirely lost for almost two decades. The song is Aiken the Bee. Well, she danced alone in nightclubs Dead Man's Power, that's it's now that song is now one of my top three favorite replacement yeah. songs. I fucking adore it. And I yeah. think the Dead Man's Pop, I might like it better than Please to Meet Me. Oh wow. I'm not sure. That's okay. We're full of bold <laughs> statements today. But perhaps the greatest travesty of the Chris Lord Algae mix is ironically the song that ended up being the closest thing to a hit the replacements ever had. Now, the song itself, as it was released, is just fine. It's definitely the best track on the original Don't Tell a Soul, and it did gain a little traction. It reached the highest point on the Billboard Top 100 of any replacement single. It hit number 51. But after listening to the Matt Wallace mix, I could easily imagine myself five years old in 1988 on a fucking dock at Lake Stamford listening to this song on a cassette boombox radio is one of the biggest hits of the summer. Had it been mixed and released like this, I think that I'll Be You could have been to the replacements what How Soon Is Now was to the Smiths.
I heard this song like in the early '90s, and, and, and I were like 12 years old or something, I'd be I'd be putting that on and. French kissing an old sculpture that my parents bought a long time ago, <laughs> pretending it was Kevin Costner, and I would have loved it. What a great song! Is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to get that out. Evocative. I mean, I think it's, that's what it's supposed it to do. It is evocative. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I guess that's what pop music's supposed to do. I don't know. Uh, but the thing is, I'll be you. Didn't make it to the top forty. No. It got close, but it wasn't a hit. Same with the album. Don't tell a soul. Mm. It got pretty close to gold, but it didn't hit. They tried everything. Yeah. Or as Paul puts it, we tried to sell out, but we couldn't even do that right. <laughs> even Slim Dunlap, he knew that they weren't going to make it in the mainstream. Just He's just sitting there all depressed like, when I really like something, then I know it's going nowhere. <laughs> Gun anyone? All right, more for me. And that's where Paul felt they were headed. Nowhere. And he was ready to quit and go solo. But Russ and Gary somehow convinced him that he wasn't quite ready yet. They told him, okay, well, you, you still have this band. You still have this record deal. You owe it to yourself to make one last record. Your writing is so good. Remember, you're the best songwriter in the world. All you need is that last record to be a hit. Then you're guaranteed a successful solo career. I mean, look at Sting or... Gwen Stefani. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Don't you want to be Gwen Stefani? I mean, this is way before Gwen Stefani, but you know what I mean. It's before No Doubt even released an album. I Actually, I don't know. <laughs> actually, I believe they re- did release. Yes, they did release one. Maybe it would have been yes. one, but Tragic Kingdom was not yet a hit. No, 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 no. This, this is before Tragic Kingdom. Yeah. So Paul got to work on the next replacements record. He's like, I'm going to make the next Tragic Kingdom. <laughs> No, but really, Paul was demoing new songs himself with his drum machine, so he didn't even bother to call Chris, Tommy, and Slim. Uh, But later on, when the guys found out Paul wasn't just demoing the songs, he was actually recording them in an L.A. studio. The guys, they flew to California to work on the album, too. It's like, why didn't you even tell us? You should have (laughs) called. And when the guys got there, they were like, you hired session musicians to play her parts? <laughs> Who's producing this album? Wait, is that Scott Litt? You got R.E.M.'s guy? Are you Gwen Stefani? <laughs> but they were fine with that. Yeah. Some, but And something good did come out of the L.A. recording sessions. Paul and Tommy reconnected again. Yeah. They found that they still love playing and developing new songs together. It actually became fun again for a little while. So as the days went by, they had an unexpected visitor come by to the studio to say hi. It was Bob Dylan. Hey. They all like took off their sunglasses <laughs> all at the same time. I was like, what's Bob? You know, because he was in L.A. doing overdubs for his latest project and he decided to stop by and say hi. Yeah. So Paul, Tommy, Chris and Slim, they were all wide eyed and excited, especially when Bob Dylan came up to them and said, like, my kids love you guys. Yeah. My young son, Jacob, he's really into your band. He really digs that song. What's that song? The one I love. <laughs> You guys are R.E.M., right? Oh, And that's fuck. when their faces fell. <laughs> no, we're the replacements. Just... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't recognize you, but I, I did recognize Scott Lid over there. <laughs> did you know that's R.E.M.'s guy? <laughs> yeah, just... we, we, we do. It just won't stop twisting the knife. The universe won't stop twisting the knife. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so, when the band got towards the end of recording, Tommy, Chris, and Slim went home. And only Paul stayed behind to do vocals and overdubs. And right before they left, Slim noticed that Paul was looking really sick. He was still drinking excessively and doing hardcore drugs. Speedballs at this point. That's a mixture of cocaine and heroin. It was getting scary. Slim even wanted to call a mental health facility for him. But instead of getting help, Paul pushed on. 
Bleary-eyed, hungover, and desperate, he laid on the floor and on his back with a microphone in his hand, he recorded the vocals for the album's title track, All Shook Down. Yeah, and when the band heard the final mix to All Shook Down, they each had a different opinion. Tommy, he loved it. He and Paul are back in cahoots. He's always been a fan of Paul's songwriting, and this to him is, ah, it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. He loved every song, even the songs he didn't play in. And Slim, he liked it okay, but he was tired of the chaos and just wanted to go home to his wife and kids. It's been three years, man, and I've aged like 20. (laughs) And Chris Mars, he hated it. He was angry about how things were going, about the record, having session drummers sitting in his seat, no longer being invited to collaborate on the songs anymore. And there were also money issues, personality clashes, and the unfortunate thing of Paul talking shit on Chris's drumming in an interview, which was printed for all to see. Yeah, Chris had already been moving away from the replacements for a while, but that was the last straw. He demanded a public apology from Paul or else he'd quit the band. But Paul and Tommy who again were treating someone in their group like shit to get them to quit, called his bluff and told them he wasn't a replacement anymore. Actually, there wasn't much about the replacements that were the replacements anymore. Yeah. Warner Brothers, Sire, Seymour Stein, they, they all said great job on the record and, and patted Paul on the back, but there was no excitement behind it. All Shook Down sold poorly, even less than Don't Tell a Soul. Paul had given 100% and he wasn't able to achieve what he thought he needed. But sometime after, he did actually achieve something big. He got sober. He knew he couldn't keep going the way he was, so he grabbed the yellow pages and found a listing for rehabs and decided to call. But then he hung up the phone and thought, God, treatment sounds horrifying. It's really for an asshole like me. I'm not good with being told what to do. So he decided he was going to white knuckle it. And if he were ever to drink again, he was going to call that rehab. And that's something he was able to do for 20 years. Yeah. Good for him. Paul, yes, he took it one day at a time. He got sober and healthy, which is great because they have to go on tour to promote All Shook Down. But like the release, the excitement was gone. Paul called the tour the traveling wake. (laughs) So (laughs) after 11 years, it was time for the replacements to hang it up. 
So on their last show, they played in Chicago on July 4th, 1991. It was a Taste of Chicago Outdoor Festival where nearly 25,000 people showed up that day. The biggest audience they've ever played in front of. And they did. They did a great job. And but by the time they got to their last song, their closing song, Hoot Nanny, mm-hmm. they did. The, you know, remember when they did the thing where they switched instruments? So they're they're all in different. You know, Paul's playing drums. Mm-hmm. Well, towards the end, he motioned for the stage manager and he told him, "Get over here and play." So the stage manager was like, "Me? Oh, okay." <laughs> and he took a seat behind the drums very awkwardly, but he started playing. And he, by the way, he doesn't. He didn't even know that guy. <laughs> And then Paul got up and he walked over to the side of the stage and grabbed the roadies and instructed them to take a guitar from Slim and then Tommy's bass. And pretty soon the whole band was on the side of the stage while the roadies and the stage manager kept playing on. And that's when they realized they just replaced the replacements <laughs> because the replacements were no more. Yeah. They actually, what I love about this story is that uh, they were supposed to play for like 75 minutes and they started bringing the replacements for the replacements onto the stage like 50 minutes in. They still had 20 minutes left in their show. And by the time someone came out and said, hey, where are the replacements? They got to have they have more to play. They're driving away. They were like, what, are we going to come back? (laughs) They're driving away in the van while the promoters are like, you goddamn replacements, you come back here and you play and finish your set. One more time to get it wrong. As far as what happened to the replacements after the band ended, the results are, to say the least, mixed. Paul Westerberg became one of the elder statesmen of alternative rock, still lauded as one of the best songwriters of the 80s, mm-hmm. even as he slipped into semi-retirement in recent years. And he also made an appearance on Saturday Night Live in 1993. That's not bad. Yeah. Lorne Michaels, still a dick. <laughs> Tommy Stinson, just like everyone predicted, never stopped playing in rock bands and spent a very strange 16 years as the bassist for Guns N' Roses during the Chinese democracy era. Of course, until original bassist Duff McKay returned in 2014. Yes, and check out the shows uh, Tommy Stinson does. Uh, he posts them on his Instagram under Tommy Stinson. Yeah. And currently, Tommy lives in upstate New York and still plays shows under his own name. Chris Mars, however, left music far behind after releasing a couple of solo albums and is reticent to even talk about his time in The Replacements because of how badly it went near the end. Yeah, but definitely check out Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. That's a great solo album. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. He refocused on art, which is what he should have probably been doing the whole time anyway. Because if you go to chrismarspublishing.com, you'll see that his art is put into a word. It's stunning. It's creepy and beautiful and unsettling. It's fantastic. I love it. His work currently hangs in 10 museums across the country. And also, Paul and Chris seem to have patched things up since then. That's good. They're not friend friends, but they at least wish each other the best. That's good. Not everyone, however, made it. Slim Dunlap had a stroke about a decade ago at the age of 61 and has never recovered. Although a lot of his friends and admirers did put together a charity album called Songs for Slim to help out. The last drummer for the replacement, Steve Foley, the guy who replaced Chris Morris for what, the last nine months the band was together? Yes. He played with Tommy Stinson in the short-lived band Bash and Pop after the replacement split and coincidentally ended up living across the street from Chris Mars. Small town! <laughs> but sadly, Steve died of an accidental overdose in 2008 after being sober for 15 years. R.I.P. R.I.P. But the most tragic story is, of course, Bob Stinson. After parting ways with the replacements, Bob certainly got the life he always wanted, but not the life he needed. 
He spent years playing in local bands at 7th Street Entry while rehearsing in an abandoned caboose in a hobo jungle. And he got mentioned in a local paper for his signature artichoke pizza. That's what everyone always said Bob wanted. Cool. But, But at the same time, his drinking got worse. His drug use got worse. And most of all, his mental health deteriorated even further. Finally, unable to handle the stress of the special needs child he had with Carlene, Bob's marriage fell apart. By 1995, Bob was alone, having finally been diagnosed with bipolar disorder just the year before at the age of 35. And while that is by no stretch of the imagination too far gone to seek help for any of you listening out there, it didn't help Bob Stenson. While though friends said he was talking about seeking serious help for his condition as far as his mental state went, he'd already put his body through too much. And on February 18th, 1995, his organs simply failed, and Bob died on his couch to no one's surprise and everyone's sadness. And also, Paul has since gotten help for his depression and anxiety, as well as Tommy. They, they definitely are all about the therapy and medicine and, and everything that goes along with it with living a very happy and healthy life, definitely. which is great for them. Great. Now, concerning the legacy of the replacements, I think that it can be defined much the same way that Jim Dickinson approached recording Please to Meet Me. The legacy of the replacements is not so much musical as it is existential. See, the replacements struggled with self-hatred for their entire career. But what I've realized is that they weren't losers at all and never were. They were the fucking replacements. Yeah. And to use their songs to romanticize failure is to waste the true power of their songs. I think that it's more about knowing that in the end, no matter how or why you fucked up and failed... The replacements are there with you because they fucked up and failed too. The important thing, though, is that both you and they, at the very least, tried. But in the end, there is one man who never stopped believing in the replacements, no matter how many times they fucked up. And he still believed even when they gave up on him. It is almost solely because of his efforts that we even know the names Paul Westerberg, Bob Stinson, Tommy Stinson, Slim Dunlap, and Chris Mars. I'm talking, of course, about the fifth replacement, Peter Jesperson. Yeah, after Peter was fired from managing the replacements, he spent the next five years drinking himself to almost certain death. I mean, he came down with acute pancreatitis and had to be hospitalized in intensive care. It was a very close call. A lot of people don't get back from that. No. And this led Peter to finally decide to enter a treatment program and sober up, which he did and is still sober almost 30 years later. And as far as his relationship with the replacements, they quickly got back to being on friendly terms. Peter even worked with Slim on stuff and and even Paul a little. Tommy was the best man at Peter's wedding. And in 2013, with Slim and Chris Mars's blessing, Paul and Tommy decided to reunite the replacements. They did a bevy of shows in the U.S. and Europe. And it was at one show in Denver that Peter came to see them with his family. Paul and Tommy were super happy to see him. They put him and his wife and and 12-year-old son on the side of the stage, you know, the best seats in the house, which really made Peter proud to watch after all these years to come back and see them play again, to watch the replacements. And and I've heard their reunion shows were really exciting. Like they played great and they killed it every time. Hell, even Peter's kid loved it. And Peter said, quote, To watch my boy watch the replacements was one of the greatest moments of my life. And that is what makes a replacement so special because it's all about how they make people feel and what their songs mean to the people, what they mean to all of us, 
the fans. And really, it was Paul Westerberg who said it best. He said that the replacements were for the ones at the front of the show. You know, those who love the rockers, slam dancing to the loud ones, like taking a ride or kids don't follow, screaming out cover songs they want to hear, the partiers who love a good hang. The replacements would be nothing without them. But it's also for the ones in the back of the crowd, the sensitive ones who waited all year to hear Paul play Skyway or Androgynous or Here Comes a Regular. They're the timid, quiet ones who might not have the guts to go up to the front and tell Paul, Tommy, Chris, and Bob how the replacements' music made them feel. And the replacements, they would have given them a hug and told them, we did it for you. And that's The Replacements 4.5. That's The Replacements entirely. It's it! We're dead! Motherfuckers! (laughs) We did it! Oh my fucking God! And that's the series. That's the entire series. Yeah, that's it. Thank y'all so much for going on this gigantic fucking journey with us. I know there are expeditions in the Arctic that last less (laughs) as long as this. And I appreciate you guys being very, very patient with us throughout the whole thing. We very much appreciate it. Thank y'all so much for uh, coming along with us. Thank you for coming along with us uh, and and listening to all of the episodes of No Dogs in Space and just being uh, great fucking fans. We've got an awesome fan base. And thanks for all the kind words that we've had on this series so far uh, and we're happy to to finally be able to finish it thanks everyone for all the patience you had while we were sick with covid and all the recovery and all that shit that's why it took a lot longer than we really wanted it to but we're we're glad that it's done we're glad we're here and we're very happy to have you all as fans so thank absolutely. you absolutely and and also a big thank you to patrick fisher a research assistant who uh helped us out with the main source and the main source being trouble boys the, the true story of the replacements by bob Mayer, which is of course as, as we've been saying Go get that book. Buy that book. It is amazing. Bob Mayer, it, it, he he really put it together really well, very very intelligently and and easy to read and really it's a it's a fun ride. It is a long ride, as you could tell. It is a long <laughs> ride, but it is a fun one nonetheless. And also thank you to Jack Rabbit who talked to me for one of the parts of a I don't even remember which episode anymore. <laughs> I think it was three, it maybe was, two. It was a while ago. <laughs> yeah. But thank you to Jack Rabbit for helping me uh, and and also relaying a story that he had to, with the replacements. As well, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, f- oh, and thank you to Liz Winstead as well. Of course, uh, veteran comic who also talked to me a little bit. She knew about the she knew the replacements. She knew all them. She she came from Minneapolis and and she she helped me uh, figuring out the the whole scene. Yeah. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we got one uh, a little profile over at No Dogs Pod uh, where you can see when a new series uh, are released and just a general cool shit uh, pictures of bands that we've covered in the past. You know stuff it's ancillary it's just a, it's a fun follow yeah yeah you can also check me out at carolina danger hidalgo I'll, I'll i'll post fun things it's sometimes it's a dog but you know it's really <laughs> she's very cute georgie's very cute so yeah. please check that out yeah and me at marcus parks and of course uh every single episode comes with a playlist you can check it out at my spotify profile uh marcus parks easily uh easily searchable just look under no dogs in space playlist and you can also remember check out there is a playlist on YouTube that you can also check out in case you don't have a Spotify account exactly. on No Dogs in Space uh, YouTube channel. That's right. And every single week we have a band that we play uh, from our listener pool out there. And this week we got a fucking great band out of Philadelphia. They're called Sub Sober from their about profile on Spotify. Sub Sober is from Philly. We support cannibalism of the wealthy, castration of law enforcement, erasure of gender, eradication of the economy, elimination of national borders, 
and we drink beer. Very <laughs> Philadelphia of you, sub sober. Yeah. Uh, so uh, here is Sick in Space off of their album called The Space Album. Uh, it's fucking great stuff. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see y'all next time. Goodbye. 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 This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.